Hey, lovers, one quick note before we get into tonight's show. This week, unfortunately, we had some technical issues with the sound, so we had to use the backup recording for the show. The quality is a little lower than normal because of that, but next week, we'll be back with even higher quality than usual. So thanks in advance and enjoy the show. Okay, Jesse, last week's episode changed the way I will forever think of IHOP. What are we talking about today? A serial charmer has a deadly secret that his multiple wives only find out when it's much too late. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad moods, gross dudes, and love <laughs> gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we're thrilled as always to welcome and shout out our new set of awesome patrons. Ashley B and Caitlin F, Kelly H and Sue C, and Sarah G. Thank you all so much for becoming patrons. And thank you guys all for coming on over and listening to us. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you. And I think that we should jump right in. Let's do it. Love was in the air in the spring of 1990 in Snohomish County, Washington. Single mother Cindy Baumgartner was working the concession stand at her son's little league game when she made the acquaintance of a handsome, charming single father who volunteered as a coach. Randy Roth probably wasn't the tallest guy at the Little League game. He stood about five foot eight or so, but he had dark hair, a roguish mustache, and big dark eyes that seemed almost black. He was well-muscled and carried himself with a vibrant intensity that Cindy felt drawn to. Cindy was blonde and pretty, athletically inclined, and took meticulous care of herself. Her hair and nails were always perfect. But more importantly, she was a brilliant mother, a good friend, and a kind-hearted person all around. In short, Cindy was a real catch. Randy got that memo right away and soon began courting her. He knew all the right things to do and say. Taking it slowly and bringing their three collective children on all of their first dates, wooing not just her, but her two boys, Tyson and Riley. Randy sent flowers regularly, beautiful displays of red roses, and Cindy couldn't help but be charmed had been over five years since her beloved husband, Tom, had passed away from cancer oh. at the shockingly young age of only 29. Oh my God, that just gave me goosebumps all over. It had been a crushing blow to Cindy and her young sons, of course. She had only loved one man for her entire life and had intended to love only Tom for forever, but fate had had different plans. Cindy didn't believe in divorce. She had been raised in a religion that didn't condone it, and the church was very important to her. She felt a kinship to Randy, who had also lost his wife too young. 
He was thoughtful, strong, kind, and her boys really seemed to like him. When Randy asked her to accompany him on a trip to Reno to attend a car show, she did have to decline, however, because her value set did not include going on an overnight trip while unmarried with an unmarried man. Oh, she would need a greater commitment before they could spend the night together. Cindy had waited five long years to find the right person to step into her life. He could wait until marriage for a night of passion. But Randy Roth did not like to wait. He loved Cindy, he said. He loved Tyson and Riley too. Why didn't they just get married in Reno and begin their life together? Thoroughly infatuated, Cindy happily accepted and went through with the elopement despite the concerns of her parents and her best friend. Cindy hadn't made such an impetuous decision ever before in her life, but she really enjoyed being swept off her feet. It was romantic and she was 100% sure that Randy was the one. The blushing bride would soon question whether she made the right decision. Only weeks into their marriage, Randy seemed to change. It was like he was a different person. But which version of Randy had been the real version? And how could she get the thoughtful, loving man who had treated her so well during their courtship back? And how well did she really know her new husband? It would turn out that sweet Cindy did not know Randy <clears throat> Roth at all. She wasn't his second wife, but his fourth. What? Randy had claimed to not believe in divorce as well, but he had in actuality been divorced twice before meeting Cindy. And what was much, much worse than divorce was the truth about what had happened to Randy's second wife, Janice. We are going to do our best today to get to the truth about Randall Roth and his fatal charm. Speaking of Fatal Charm, that's the title of one of the books I used for research this week. I read Fatal Charm by Carlton Smith. And I also used A Rose for Her Grave by the queen of true crime herself, Her Highness Anne Rule. I kind of wanted to do that like wrestling style. Anne Rule. <laughs> oh gosh, we love Anne Rule. So let's start with... The guy we need to get to the bottom of here, Mr. Randall Roth. He was born along the edge of the Badlands in North Dakota the day after Christmas in 1954. His 16-year-old mother, Elizabeth, and 18-year-old father, Gordon, had married only three weeks before Randy's birth, somewhat reluctantly. Both families were religious. Gordon's Protestant and Elizabeth's were Catholic, and they couldn't agree on much besides the fact that the kids needed to be married to bring a child into the world. Seems unlikely that these teenagers would have gotten married without the parental and societal pressure that they faced. Randy would later blame himself for the circumstances of his parents' unhappy marriage. Gordon blamed Elizabeth for allegedly trapping him with the pregnancy. And Elizabeth blamed the slightly older Gordon for seducing her in the first place. Wow. This sounds yeah, so really healthy. This is, there <laughs> is a whole pile of resentment going on here. <laughs> and it didn't get any easier as they welcomed more children, eventually giving Randy three sisters and one younger brother named Davey. Five kids is not going to make an already not great marriage any better. The family moved to the Seattle, Washington area where Gordon got a really good job at the Boeing plant, but the marriage did not improve. Gordon allegedly ruthlessly beat the children while Elizabeth fought him and did her best to intervene. She doted on Davy especially. 
Unsurprisingly, the marriage ended in 1971 when Randy was a teenager and Gordon paid so little child support that Elizabeth had to go on government assistance. It was a hard time for Elizabeth. She also forced Randy to work several low-paying jobs to basically help keep the family afloat. And this was tough for Randy. She said, you have to work to make at least enough money to pay for all of the groceries for the entire family. Yeah, he's a kid. And he's a kid. He's like 15 or 16 at this point. And he didn't want to do it. I mean, he didn't make these kids. It wasn't his responsibility in his opinion to feed his younger brothers and sisters or brother and sisters. And so he felt pretty resentful that he had to work a few different part-time low-paying jobs and then hand over his whole check to his mother. Randy had a major, major chip on his shoulder and he turned into a mean-spirited bully and a juvenile delinquent. His lack of wealth and power made him seek it out and achieve it at any cost through violence, lying, stealing, whatever it took for him to feel like he was gaining some sort of respect and definitely material possessions. During his high school years, Randy also started to display a worrying trend of misogynistic and emotionally abusive behavior towards all women, especially romantic partners, and this would continue throughout his life. He was jealous, controlling, temperamental, passive-aggressive, and sometimes just straight-up aggressive. His high school sweetheart and eventual fiancé, Terry, believed Randy's hatred of women and general antisocial behavior stemmed from a deep-seated resentment for his mother. Yeah. Yeah, he routinely put her down. He fought with her. He complained about her. By the time Randy was a senior in high school, he had developed a reputation as the meanest kid in school. Terry said, Everybody knew you just stayed out of his way. Other kids learned to never confront Randy or ridicule him. Somehow, accidentally, your mirrors on your car would get broken or a scratch would appear on your paint. You never teased Randy. You never made him look like a fool. Randy also got into a number of fights with other kids and was frequently suspended from school for brief periods. No other boy could approach Terry without getting the brunt of Randy's possessive anger. That's what they called it, the wrath of Randy. On several occasions, Randy punched out other boys for touching her or even approaching her. Randy made it clear that Terry was his exclusive territory. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot going on here. There was also, I think, when his dad beat him, for some reason he had a better relationship with his dad than his mom, even though his dad was the one who beat him. But there was this feeling that he had to like be a man. You see this refrain over and over again. He's like this with his own son eventually when he has a child that he has to be the manliest, he has to be the toughest. And this is his way of asserting some sort of macho alpha male thing over the other boys in high school. Speaking of being macho, after high school, Randy joined the Marines, which he said was the toughest of the military. I'm sure. So yeah, he's like, the Marines are just the best. So I have to go where the best is. So he joined the Marines, but not before knocking Terry up. Not wishing to repeat his parents' cycle, Randy robbed a tire store at Knife Point, collecting $240, which he gave to Terry to get an abortion, which she did. The military was probably not the best choice for Randy. He obviously was craving power over other people and intimidation tactics. He liked being the big man on campus. And in the Marines, they break you down to build you back up again. Yep. So the breaking down wasn't going to work 
for Randy and he really didn't like being told what to do. He had a very sick need to control situations. Obviously, he wasn't in control when he was in boot camp and getting deployed. And then he also could not control his girlfriend, Terry. So he started writing her letters every single day, making sure that she wrote him every day, making sure that she was available anytime he tried to communicate with her, give her a call. He also told her what she was allowed to wear, who she was allowed to see, when she was allowed to leave her house. This is like one of those Nexium. Do you remember that cult when they, Mm -hmm. and they like control their life? Yes. And they would make them starve because it was the perfect woman was thin. And it's like a cult of one though. Yeah. And he actually had that same thing about women's bodies. We'll see it in his future relationships. He was always berating the women he was with to lose more weight and to be thinner. His wives in general were pretty tiny people. And this might've been a reaction to his mother as well, because I got the impression that his mother was like a larger woman. Okay. Know, not like super duper large, but just like not a, a teeny little toothpick. Well, when you have five kids, imagine it's hard to try <laughs> to find time to work out for yourself. Ex- so exactly. And she like to give her a break. Yeah. She's obviously struggling to put food on the table. I'm sure that asking your teenage son to get a job to feed your children isn't anyone's favorite thing to do. No. So Randy eventually grew so miserable that he asked his mother, the mother he resented and belittled, to write to the military and ask them to discharge him on account of financial hardship, saying that she needed him to come home and help provide for his four younger siblings. This did work, and Randy was allowed out of the service. Despite having only worked in a desk job during his deployment to Okinawa, Japan, Randy would tell people for decades to come that he had been part of several top secret dangerous missions in Vietnam where he had parachuted into enemy territory and done bone chilling things to soldiers and civilians alike, including a story he once told a neighbor in which he strangled a baby to death with a piano wire. Uh, excuse me? Well, don't worry. That one was a total lie. Yeah, but if you can even fabricate that shit, then there's like something not right. He's a sick individual. He also would buy every book about Vietnam and read it obsessively and then steal real people's accounts of the atrocities of war and pretend like he had been a part of it or he had committed those atrocities. So he never left Okinawa. He never set foot in Vietnam. And the conflict was even pretty much largely over by the time Randy even deployed to Japan. Randy returned and proposed to Terry. Despite being discharged allegedly for hardship, he didn't support his mother or his siblings at all. He just moved in with Terry's family. Terry's mother had never completely warmed to her daughter's fiance, claiming that he had Charles Manson eyes. (laughs) The red flag right there. That's a huge red flag. (laughs) That's not a description that I would ever want somebody to say about you or your child. Serial killer cult leader eyes. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you, I didn't even think about this whole like cult of one, but you kind of hit the nail on the head right there. (laughs) 
So she was never a big fan of Randy's, but Harry seemed to love him. So she was giving him a shot and she was letting him move in after he was discharged from the military until she caught him in her own house with another woman. So they weren't hooking up or anything. It was just he had invited this other woman over and her small child. And so the mother was like, you're going to have to get the hell out of our house immediately. And Terry agreed. And the family at this point was very relieved that Terry had finally seen the light. Yeah. And was moving on. Even though Randy had been the one cheating, he was incensed at losing Terry or more likely losing control of Terry. Yep. So he began stalking her and her parents whom he blamed for the breakup. As in, it wasn't my bad behavior. It was you telling her about my bad behavior that ruined our marriage. Yeah. (laughs) Or our relationship. Yeah. (laughs) In 1975, he burglarized Terry's family's home in retaliation and was subsequently caught and arrested. While in custody, Randy was also charged for the tire store holdup. Randy was still relatively young and a military vet, so the judge went light on him, only giving him probation. After Randy got his light sentence, he went out and married the other woman, 20-year-old single mother Donna Sanchez. Oh, my God. That was her. She was the one on July 4th, 1975. Stealing our anniversary. Yep, they had your anniversary. Donna worked in a bank, had a little girl, and very, very much believed for many, many years, and I think still to this day, that Randy really was a valuable military asset who had been deployed on top secret missions in Vietnam. Oh, my God. She definitely believed everything he told her, hook, line, and sinker. Randy was at the time working at a manufacturing plant and the couple moved to Portland, Oregon for a higher paying job. Terry believed that the couple had separated, going back to Terry, because he kept coming home and he told Terry that he and Donna were separating. And so they kind of started fooling around again. But the truth was that they were far from separating. And in fact, Donna was pregnant with Randy's baby. Oh, my God. Gregory Roth was born on August 30th, 1977, and Terry would later claim that Randy was not at his laboring wife's bedside that night, but instead with her. Wow. She didn't know, though. She didn't know until later when she found out he had a baby and what his birthday was. And then she's like, wait a minute. We were together that night. What the hell? Greg's birth was not the only major event happening in the Roth family at the time. The same day that Randy was becoming a father, his younger brother Davey was being investigated for a horrific murder. Oh my God. This is a pretty poisonous family tree, at least this generation. I'm sure, I hope that all of the children in the next generation turned out well. But yeah, Davey and Randy were bad, bad guys. So Davey had not had an easy road in life. He was worlds away from the good looks of his brother, Randy. Randy was 5'8", muscular, had a big thick head of hair, nice mustache, the whole nine yards. Instead, at 20 years old, Davey was 6'5". He had a a really bad acne-ridden complexion, He had rotting and missing teeth. What? And a receding hairline. Did he just not have dental care? I think he didn't have dental care. And 
I, they didn't say it explicitly, but it seemed based on everything that I read that there must've been something just a little bit off. And I'm not sure if it was developmental or mental health. There was a reason that I felt like he was pretty much unable to take care of himself. It sounded got like. It, got it. And okay. why Elizabeth doted upon him was I got the feeling that it's what a mother does, of course, when your child is different or unable to take care of themselves for whatever yes. reason. Yeah. Okay. So it seemed like there was a hygiene issue. Okay. There. His appearance led to bullying and paired with an overall abysmal academic record, Davy dropped out of school in 10th grade. He didn't seem to work based on what I read, and he still lived with his mother, who felt that her son was a misunderstood and sensitive giant. She gave him a old beater-style car so that he could get out of the house, and the car and his 22 rifle were his prized possessions. So the gun was given to him by one of his sister's boyfriends, or maybe husband, I'm not sure. It was a romantic partner of one of his sisters, and it was his only friend. And so apparently this guy gave him a gun, and they would go shooting together. So the card that his mom gave him and the gun that his only friend gave him were his two prized possessions. One day in late July or early August 1977, Davey broke his arm after he fell out of a tree which again seems like a very young person, like childlike thing to be doing because he's 20 years old. So Elizabeth took him to the emergency room where they prescribed him the heavy duty painkiller Darvon. He began drinking beer, taking the Darvon and Elizabeth's Valium all together. This was a recipe for disaster, clearly. On August 11th, Davey picked up an attractive female hitchhiker And he said she was in her mid-20s to maybe early 30s. She agreed to stop and drink some beer with him. And the two began to get drunk when Davey, emboldened by the beer and the drugs and the whole cocktail of the thing, made a move on her. Now, he would later say that she did respond well. So she was making out with him. He even said that he asked her to take off her shirt and she agreed. But I I don't know if that's the case. It sounds to me like it might've just been a straight up sexual assault or he did make a move and she rejected him because ultimately he said later that he stopped and then he asked her, well, have you ever done this before? Have you ever fooled around like this before? Implying sexual intercourse because Davey had never been sexually with a woman and it sounded like- he might've had zero physical experience with a woman at all. At that point, he said that she said something like, well, yeah, but I wouldn't do it with somebody like you. Okay. And according to his later confession, he said that because of the rejection, something inside of him snapped. He asked her if she wanted a peacock feather. Apparently he collected peacock feathers so that he had some in his trunk. Okay. When she said, sure, she'd like a peacock feather. He got out of the trunk. He grabbed two peacock feathers and also a rubber cord. After going back up to the car, he handed her the peacock feathers. And then while she was reaching for them, he put the rubber cord around her neck and began to strangle her. 
He would later say that he held on as tightly as possible while she struggled until she was blue in the face and had urinated on the seat. And she seemed like she was unconscious. And that's when the rubber cord actually snapped and broke. And he wasn't sure if she was passed away or just passed out. So he got another rubber cord from the trunk and resumed strangling her for several more minutes. Afterwards, he got out, he dragged her away from the car, and then he took the gun that he had in his trunk and he shot her seven times in the back of it. What? This is so much overkill. And then he did something very strange And for an unknown reason, he shot several rounds of ammo into his own car. So now the car is riddled with bullet holes. And apparently he also had some spray paint. So he spray painted death to the one who enter on its side. Oh, so he is not well. This man is not a well man, clearly. He left the hitchhiker's body like in the bushes, essentially. And then he went to go get more beer. Once home, he drank the entirety of a case of beer and all of the remaining Valium and Darvon pills with the intention of killing himself. Okay. But he ended up only sleeping for two days straight. Jesus. When he woke up, he told his only friend, the guy who had given him the gun, what had happened. And I think that the guy didn't believe him because- the Roth family all thought that he was just this sweet, gentle giant who was introverted and sensitive. Okay. So this was a surprise to everyone that this had occurred. And so I'm kind of thinking that his buddy was like, yeah, okay, you must have had a weird drug-induced dream. Let's go and see this body if you're right. But then they get there and it's not there. And Davey's like, oh, shit. And the reason it wasn't there was because a couple of berry pickers, uh, like a husband and wife were out there for recreational berry picking on the side of the road, had discovered the body. Okay. I mean, he's been out for two days, so. He has been totally passed out cold for two days. He was eventually caught, arrested, and tried. And after his trial, he was convicted and sentenced in February of 1980 to life in prison. It would take 40 years for the authorities to discover the identity of the woman that Davy had killed. He claimed he didn't remember her name. Oh my God. And what that guy had done to her and with the multiple gunshot wounds that had exit wounds through her face, it was impossible to really tell how old she was. Yeah. So when he said, well, I think she was between the ages of 25 and 35, they believed him. They went with that age range. In 2008, a cold case detective exhumed Jane Doe's body and discovered that she'd actually been only 16 to 19 years old. Oh my God. After running her DNA through a DNA database, it's essentially like they collect all of the Ancestry.com and 23andMe's, et cetera. Yeah. In 2018, a familial match was found. In June of 2020, cold case detectives were able to definitively name the Jane Doe as 17-year-old Elizabeth Ann Roberts. Whoa. 
Elizabeth had been adopted and she had left her adoptive family's home in late July after they had gotten into a fight. And that's why she was hitchhiking. Her family, who loved her very, very much, had reported her missing on the day that she took off. So they had been looking for her for all of these years. So sad. Really sad. And there's no such thing as real closure because the news that you're looking for is the news you also don't want, which is that a body has been found. But I do hope that there's some peace being able to lay her to rest. David was eventually released in 2005 after serving 26 years in prison, but died 10 years later at the age of 58 from cancer. Clearly, this family has some rage issues as it relates to women. Yeah. There's a lot of violence against women that maybe they inherited from their dad. I have no idea. I don't know what powder keg existed that both of these boys ended up being killers of women. Because Davy's big brother, Randy, was no better, not by a long shot. The same month that Davy was convicted of murder, Randy also filed for divorce from Donna Sanchez and was awarded custody of Greg. What? I'm really not clear on exactly how this all went down because most of the time, unless there is some severe addiction or mental health issues or just yeah. general health issues, most of the time, the mother gets at least 50-50 custody, if not full custody, especially back in the 70s. But I didn't read about Donna Sanchez having any such problems and she was parenting her own daughter that she had before Randy just fine. So it is very unclear to me why she eventually let him take her son, especially because they would interview Donna later and she was the only one of Randy's wives who did not have a problem with him, who said that he was never violent with her or never abusive and that she still had no idea why after five years of marriage, he came home and said, I want a divorce one day. So I just feel like maybe she's not telling us everything or maybe she was scared of him. And so when she talked to the police later, she didn't want to say anything that would get him in trouble because the only reason I could imagine giving up custody of my child is if I was terrified of the man and maybe he threatened her and she just even years later still didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. But that is just speculation. We do not know why Donna just gave up custody of her only son. Not one to waste time. Only a few months later, in the late fall or early winter of 1980, Randy met a vivacious 28-year-old single mother named Janice Miranda at a Parents Without Partners function. Janice was as big in spirit as she was small in stature. She stood only 4'11 and barely made the triple digits in weight. Janice worked in a medical office as an assistant, but wanted to go back to school to study child psychology. She had a seven-year-old daughter named Jelena, who was the absolute light and driving force of her life. Only a year before she met Randy, she had moved to the Seattle area to be closer to her best friend, Louise Mitchell. So Louise said that Jan was having a very hard time working two jobs and supporting Jelena while she tried to figure out a plan so that she could go back to school. When she met Randy, she was looking for stability and support. Janice found Randy to be handsome, responsible, chivalrous, and a good father. He told Janice that he made a good living working on specialized diesel trucks and he owned his own house. Randy promised that if they married, she could quit her job to be a stay-at-home mom and even run an in-home daycare. She loved kids. This was her passion 100%. 
So she wanted to stay home with Jelena, spend more time with her daughter, but also have an in-home daycare so she could save up for going back to school to study child psychology. That's amazing. This was an offer too good to refuse. And she thought that the guy attached to it wasn't half bad either. He was a good looking guy, or so she thought. The couple had only officially begun dating in January of 1981, but Janice and Jelena moved in with Randy only one month later and were married in early March of the same year. So fast. So fast. And it's really interesting because he always picks single mothers, which I think is very twisted. Oh, yeah. But he always gets them to move extremely quickly. And it seems like both of them had daughters. Yes, which is uncomfortable if you're thinking about what type of person he is. And obviously I know more about what kind of person he is. And so we'll talk about that later. I feel like I keep having to say, we're going to talk about this later, but guys, don't worry. We'll get to everything about this despicable human being. Pretty soon into the marriage, Jan realized that Randy was not as he had advertised. First of all, he did not own his own home. He explained, oh, well, what I really meant is that it's rent to own and I'm renting it right now, but I could buy it. I've like heard of people doing that commonly, like saying that. I know a couple of people who have said that. Yeah, it's like, just (laughs) wait till you actually own your house, brah. It doesn't matter. Also, it also I don't, while it was a draw for Janice, I don't think that would have precluded them from dating or getting married if he had been honest with her. No. So he says, well, I don't own my house because I still need to get the down payment together. But I have a great idea. This is how we're going to get the down payment (laughs) together. Because you are going to quit your jobs and you're going to have your in-home daycare. You don't need a car. You don't need to go anywhere. So we are going to drive your car to a junkyard, destroy it. And then we are going to call the insurance company and report it stolen. So you get the insurance money for your car and we'll use that as the down payment. Oh my God. Janice wasn't psyched about this plan. First of all, she didn't want to lose her car, but she agreed with Randy that, I guess it made sense. And she ended up going forward with being complicit in insurance fraud. Jesus. This served two purposes for Randy. He used an asset of Jan's to buy an asset in his name. And he also left her stranded at home alone so he could better isolate her from all of those who loved her. She still chatted regularly on the phone to Louise, though, and confessed that she was unhappy in her marriage only a few months in. He had stripped her of all of her independence and she was beginning to think maybe this isn't worth it. There were letters that she wrote to her mother detailing how she only had one or two kids currently in the daycare, but she was building it up and how she was mostly happy. She was obviously trying to put on a good face, but she said, I feel like I've, I only just recently realized how independent I've been for so many years and how I'm just used to it being me and Jelena against the world. Yeah. And I thought that having security and stability and a father figure was going to be amazing. And now I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm just too independent. Maybe losing my independence isn't worth this type of love. Yeah, no, it's definitely not. And that's what she was saying to her best friend. That's also what she suggested in that letter to her mother. She was also, according to her best friend, less than satisfied with their love life. 
Randy claimed that he had contracted an infection after his vasectomy that made sex painful. So he wasn't inclined for regular sexual activity to be a part of their marriage. That's a real bait and switch. Yeah. That is. Women like sex too. You can't do that to a girl. How old is he at this time? He's what, like 25-ish? Way too young. 26? Yeah, he shouldn't have been having this problem. The truth is, is that there was nothing wrong with Randy's situation. It was just that he was stuffing Greg's previous babysitter. And Carlton Smith does not name this woman. And Anne Rule gives her a pseudonym. So we're going to go with Anne Rule's pseudonym, Lily Vandeveer, because also Lily Vandeveer is a very, (laughs) is a great pseudonym if you're going to have one. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So this woman we're calling Lily Vandeveer apparently had been Greg's babysitter, but when Jelena opened an in-home daycare, she told her husband, well, clearly Greg doesn't need to be going to anyone else to be babysat when he can be babysat by his stepmother in her own daycare. Oh but my God. he kept bringing Greg over there and paying this woman $200 a month, which is not much, but this is also 1981. And so it was driving Janice crazy. And she shared with her best friend that she believed that he must be having an affair with her because he would say, I'm going to pick up Greg from Lily's and he wouldn't come home for hours. Yeah. There's a couple red flags going on here and they've only been married for a handful of months at this point. So even though Janice had her suspicions, she was willing to put them aside because she really wanted this marriage to work out and she really wanted to move her life forward. Even if they ended up getting divorced eventually, She liked owning her own home. She liked trying to get back on a path of studying child psychology. So she decided to put these fears and suspicions away and try to get the marriage on track. With that in mind, they closed on Randy's house in September of 1981. And at that point, Randy told Janice that it was necessary to buy a $100,000 life insurance policy as well, just in case something happened to one of them, then the other one would be able to cover the mortgage. The mortgage on the rent to buy. Yes. And Janice agreed. She said, well, I guess that makes sense. The life insurance policy would take effect on November 7th. Jelena recalled Randy and her mother fighting day and night during this period, specifically about money and also about Lily and about the money that she felt like Randy was wasting by sending Greg to this other babysitter. Okay. And I think that she couldn't say outright, I think you're having an affair with her. So she was just basing it on the budget. Yep. And she ended up winning that argument. And Greg stopped going to Lily's to be babysat. And Randy was full of rage about this. There was some simmering resentment that she had managed to win an argument and control him. Psychotic. And Jan was growing very concerned about where her future with Randy was going. She told Jelena one night, two days before Thanksgiving, that Jelena might have to prepare herself to go live with her biological father in Texas. This poor sweet girl said, but mommy, I want to be with you. I don't want to go anywhere. And she said, you might not have a choice someday. Oh my God, she like knew. She knew. And so she showed Jelena that she had some secret money stashed away. I guess that Jelena's father sent support money that Randy didn't know about. 
And obviously she had siphoned some off from her daycare proceeds. And so she had it in an envelope that she taped to the bottom of a drawer of a dresser. And she showed her where it was. And she said, if anything ever happens to me, this is your money. You come get this money. This is where you can find it. Oh my God. So of course this poor child is now equally concerned and terribly worried about her mother. Louise, Jan's friend, said that she was at this point considering divorce, but again, she didn't want to give up the house. For some reason, owning her own house was very important to Janice. Randy convinced Jan to go to his stepmother's home in Washougal, Washington for Thanksgiving, and on Black Friday, he offered to take Janice on a romantic hike to Beacon Rock nearby Washougal, Washington, and it's really, really, really pretty. I looked up pictures. It is gorgeous, but it does look kind of terrifying to hike. So it's only, I think, like a mile or a mile half up through switchbacks, but the drops are insane. It goes 848 feet up in the air. No, And you could drop like down the whole way, it looks like. So Janice and Randy left his stepmother's house at 9 a.m. And at 11 a.m., Randy was found screaming for help on the hiking path. He ran up to some hikers who were out with their dog and he was begging them, have you seen my wife? Have you seen my wife? And they said, no. And he said that he basically said something that she had slipped or she had fallen, but he wasn't sure where she went. So he was hoping that she was just had fallen down a little bit and was back on the path and he couldn't find her. The hiker said that he was very odd. He was acting like he was concerned, but it wasn't quite connecting when people, somebody's like doing something and acting that way, but it doesn't seem to be connecting with their eyes. Yeah. And that their dog, who is very even-tempered and was the friendliest dog in the world, was snarling and snapping at him. Uh, Yeah. So I don't know if they sensed the the adrenaline and the deception or what, but the dog was not having Randy. Eventually, park rangers, EMTs, and other emergency personnel were called, and Janice's body was discovered by an air rescuer some 300 feet down from where Randy had said she had fallen in some trees. Jesus. Janice had died of blunt force trauma. When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations. I mean, a normal one would be somebody not showing up when they're supposed to. A hopefully abnormal one would be a terrible breakup that causes chaos in the workplace. When those things happen, you need to talk to Bambi. Small businesses are a huge part of our life. In addition to Love Murder, I have two other small businesses, and HR is one of those things that has always seemed like it's for bigger companies. With Bambi, get access to your dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly, team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, trainings, and feedback. I love that Bambi's HR managers are all U.S.-based experts who are really dedicated to the craft of HR. They add such a personal touch to a really important area of the business. They understand the nuances of HR for all 50 states, and businesses that work with Bambi are four times less likely to have a complaint filed against them. Best of all, HR managers can easily cost 80 grand a year. But Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. 
Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com, Bambi dot com, type in Love Murder. There were a couple things that the first responders noticed about Randy. One was that his story kept changing. He said at one point, I was ahead of her and then I looked back and she was just gone. Another time he said, I was behind her because I wanted to catch her if she fell and she went to go get a picture, which I told her not to, and then she fell. So he was changing his story around right from the get-go. Sus. Very, very sus. And he was oddly emotionless. So the hiker said he had at least appeared to try to have emotion with them. But when he was talking to the first responders, Mm -hmm. he had a very flat affect And he said only repeatedly, which was strange, she didn't drink, she didn't smoke. That's why I married her. I loved her very much. What? Yes, he said this to a couple different people that she didn't drink, she didn't smoke. You know, I loved her very much. And it stuck in their minds because A, he wasn't crying. And B, that is such a bizarre thing to say about the supposed love of your life just passed away in a shocking and tragic accident. Yeah. I'd say it wasn't. I would say maybe it was not. Randy wasted zero time trying to cash in on the life insurance policy. He called their agent the very next day, bright and early on the Saturday morning of the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Jesus. By the way, the agent was still in bed. He was still sleeping. And when the phone call came through, he answered it and he was kind of confused. He was like, yes, of course, I remember you, Mr. Roth. And Randy was saying, I need to claim my policy. I need to make a claim. And he's like, are you saying that you want to cancel before your premiums go through? Because I'm I'm confused. We just set up this policy three weeks ago. And he's like, no, I'm telling you that I need to make a claim. And he goes, well, you can't make a claim unless somebody has died. And he goes, yeah, my wife's dead. That's how he said it. Yeah, he's like, yeah, my wife's dead. My wife uh, passed away. She just was in a terrible accident, so... Uh, I just need to make a claim. This guy was blown away. He said he had never, ever had somebody cash in on their life insurance policy only three weeks after it going into effect. No, that's insane. It and has he had, to be some sort of like, at, I don't know. I mean, I guess- A flagging, happen. they should flag it. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, that's like not- that's not normal. No. And he said he had never had somebody call him at home at also, seven in the morning. The Friday after Thanksgiving is a holiday. It is. It is. So, well, this is Saturday too. This is the Saturday yeah, morning. Mind your own full business, on the weekend. Dude. Wow. So where's poor Jelena? So he had come home and he had told Jelena that there had been an accident and that her mother was in the hospital even though he knew full well that she was dead because this is another thing the first responders thought was weird. He insisted on seeing the body and checking that she was really deceased. That's so fucking weird. It's very weird. They said that he was even saying it kind of like that, where it was like, I just have to see her. I need to have closure. Like you'd be in full shock if something like that just happened. Yeah. Maybe there's some component of me that would be like, I need to see him, but I wouldn't be like, well, I just need to make sure he's dead so I can have closure. No. (laughs) 
horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Everything is off-putting. But I mean, at the time too, people are giving him a lot of latitude because they are aware that people respond to shock and horror very differently. Yes, yes. And can sometimes say the wrong thing. They can respond inappropriately. They can look like they're having zero response. They can seem like they're having too much of a response. So all of these things are red flags in hindsight, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it would tip you off to this guy's a murderer. No. So he had come home. He had told Jelena that your mom was in a hiking accident. She's in the hospital and hopefully she's going to get better. And then the next morning calls bright and early. And the guy's like, I can't do anything to help you right now. Call me in the office on Monday. But he was also thinking no one whose loved one dies their first call before making funeral arrangements, before telling the child that her mother's actually dead would call the insurance first on a weekend at seven in the morning of a holiday weekend. No the speed in which he was trying to cash in on this policy was alarming and that should also raise some flags. So he did eventually tell Jelena that her mother had passed and Randy did not like women and he did not like little girls. Later on, you'll see that he wanted custody of one of his wife's sons and he wanted custody of Greg, but he refused to raise little girls. It was really weird. So he's like, tell your dad you're coming and pack your bags and get out of here. And so this traumatized child is trying to get her things together when she remembers what her mother said about the money. Yeah. So she goes into her bedroom and she's trying to get the envelope when Randy catches her. And he's like, well, what's that? And she said, it's money that my dad sent my mom that my mom was saving for me. So she told me it was my money and that I should take it if anything happens. And he snapped it right out of her hands. And he said, hmm, guess the bitch was holding out on me. Oh my God. And he did not give it back. He took that child's money. Disgusting. I mean, I don't know why I'm surprised he took her mother's life. So I shouldn't be shocked that he- He's taking money from her too, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of stealing, even after Jelena moved to Texas with her father, Randy applied to receive Jelena's social security benefits, saying that she was in his custody. So fucked up and so easy to figure out. Yeah. The police did look into Jan's death, mostly due to Randy's odd behavior and the speed in which he had tried to collect his life insurance policy, but it was impossible to prove. There was no physical evidence that would have indicated. The only thing that they probably could have done is looked at the fact that she didn't have any scratches or material underneath her fingernails, which you would have had if you had just naturally slipped, you would have grabbed everything on your way yeah. down, trying to, to hold on to something. So there was nothing that would indicate she had tried. Okay. Which to me indicates that she was pushed because course, that means yeah. she was in air already and she yes. couldn't grab out anything. And they did say that based on the trajectory from where he said she slipped, she was much farther down than she should have been okay. given if she had slipped and fallen from the location that Randy said, the rescuers knew that she should be 150 feet down, but she was an additional 150 feet more down. And so one of the rescuers said that means that either it wasn't from the same place he indicated 
or there was a different trajectory to how she fell, which uh-huh. could have been a big old push. Science. Yeah. So that was about all they had as far as strong evidence against him. But those types of murders are very hard to prove. And there was no evidence in interviewing all of the people in his life that anything was amiss in the marriage other than she was maybe a little generally unhappy. Okay. What they didn't know was that he was indeed having an affair with Lily Vandeveer. And had they known that, maybe they would have looked a little closer because that's some real motive. Of course. And did Jelena ever report that he took the money or anything like that from her? I don't know. I know that she testified later and that's where we're getting that information from. But I don't know if she came forward and said it at the time of the investigation. Got it. So while the police were still actively investigating, Lily's husband came home one night early in late December of 1981. So a month or less after his wife has died. And he caught Randy and Lily lying naked together in front of the fireplace. On a bear rug or what? Let's just say it's a bear rug. The whole head and all going, ah. With a bottle of cheap champagne. So the husband told Randy that if you continue to see my wife or contact her, I'm going to have to go to the police and I'm going to tell them that you've been seeing my wife this entire time. And then maybe they'll look into your wife's death a little closer. So smart. Yeah. Randy responded. I mean, he usually tried to fight back, especially against other men, but he was like, you'll never see me again. Bye, Lily. Peace. (laughs) Ran out of there with the, (laughs) with the cloud wind. (laughs) The cloud behind behind him. Exactly. Yes, he did. And so later on, this husband did eventually come forward and they asked him why he hadn't told the police this at the time that the investigation was still open. And he said that, to be honest, he had played a tough game with Randy, but he was terrified of him. He really was concerned about retaliation. Randy had also told Lily those same fake Vietnam stories about how he was some sort of mercenary killer. Baby murderer. Baby murderer, everyone murderer. So he said he believed those stories at the time. And so even though he said, you know, stay the F away from my wife, at the same time, he was like, please, question mark. (laughs) So yeah, he said, I didn't come forward because I didn't want to suffer any retaliation. So they basically stopped the investigation. They just closed it. The coroner said that her death was the result of an accident. And no charges were ever filed against Randy. And he got issued a big fat check for 90 grand. I think like I don't, something was taken out of it. So it ended up only being 90 grand in April of 1982, which is more like 275 to $280,000 in today's money. <clears throat> Holy shit. For nine months of marriage. And he got a house out of it. With that nice chunk of change, he sold the house and bought a beautiful new home in a nice neighborhood where he became fast friends with the family next door, a nice blended family named the Goodwins, who had a, I think at this time, like she was 13, maybe 12 or 13 year old daughter and a son who was around Greg's age. Randy also befriended a 21 year old checkout girl at a local convenience store named Donna Clift. Donna was a single mother of a three-year-old daughter. Oh my God, again? Again, here we go. This is Donna number two and wife with- Gonna be wife number three. Yeah. And the third one to have a little girl. 
She was a single mother of a three-year-old daughter and found herself charmed by both Randy and his sweet son, Greg. Once more, Randy pulled out all of the stops to woo his new target. He was generous and attentive. He was loving and passionate. He sent Donna a dozen American Beauty roses three or four times a week. What are those? Like from the American Beauty movie? Is that what you're saying? Like the red ones? This was in the Anne Rule edition of the story. And she named them verbatim American Beauty Roses, which apparently is a breed of roses, which is probably where the film American Beauty got the name. (laughs) Crazy. Yeah. Classic. He showered her with presents. He bought her gold necklaces, a gold bracelet, two beautiful leather coats. After only a few months of dating, Randy proposed to Donna on Valentine's Day. She accepted, and the two were married on May 17th, 1985, even though Donna wasn't even completely sure that her divorce from her high school sweetheart, who was her daughter's father, was even officially done. So really? Yeah, so she was like, we have to wait. We can't get married this fast. And he was like, no, 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 we, we need to get married. And so he was the one pushing getting married quickly, even though she was like, look, I'm pretty sure my divorce is finalized, so let's just wait. I think in the end, they might have even had to do another quick ceremony to make sure to like extra legalize it. And of course, with marriage, what do you need to get, Andy? You need to get a marriage license. And if you're Randy Roth, you need to get some. A a ring. No, life insurance. Oh. (laughs) Sorry, my brain does not go there. (laughs) No, because you're not a murderer. (laughs) So yeah, life insurance is what we're talking about here. And Donna did already have a very small policy. It was something I think through her work. So she got a $3,000 policy that her daughter was the beneficiary of. She agreed to transfer that to Randy. She's like, fine, I already have one. You can be the beneficiary, that's fine. And he's like, no, well, we need to get a heftier policy. And she was like, dude, I just turned 22. I'm going to be alive for a really long time. So I don't know why we're talking about this. And I don't really want to have this conversation anymore. <laughs> so yeah, you kind of creep. You're such a creep. We just got married. I'm 22 years old. He wasn't much older. I think he was in his early 30s at this point. Why are you talking about this? So she's yeah. like, kind of get out of here. Like, we don't need to spend that type of money on something that's not going to happen anyway. Could you imagine talking about that in your 20s? recently turned 22. No, No. I wasn't thinking about my own mortality even a little bit. No. I mean, I probably should have been now that I think of all the nonsense that I got up to. (laughs) But yeah, so she was over it. She was also, she'd found Jan's ashes in a cardboard box in their closet. Oh no. And she was like, what the hell? Why are you keeping your wife in a box like this? Shouldn't she be honored somewhere? And he said that he was going to go and spread them around her favorite lake. But in reality, it turns out he just threw them in the garbage. What? How did she find out? I don't know if she found them later. I do not recall that part of the- Also, Jelena should have gotten them. Jelena obviously should have gotten her mother's ashes. I mean, the poor girl was reeling from so much change in her life. I'm sure that she wasn't even thinking of it. No, of course not. Yeah, there was so much adjustment going on in her life. So she already said, we've had to talk about some very morbid things already. You had your ex-wives, former wives, ashes in our closet. I'm not talking about death anymore. 
for her. When Donna refused to consider getting a heftier policy, Randy grew demonstrably colder towards her. He began to give her the silent treatment and refused to put her name on the house, on his checking account, on the vehicles. He wouldn't let her understand anything about the finances or give her access to his accounts in any way. Oh my God. What a little She bitch. said she she felt like an object in the marriage. She's like, I was like part of the furniture. I had no rights. I had no say in the marriage. I was just supposed to acquiesce and do whatever he wanted. <clears throat> and I was not an equal partner in this relationship. Of course not. So they had only been married for about a month or two when Randy suggested that they take a river rafting trip with Donna's parents. So I think it was her father and stepmother, but she regarded her stepmother as a mother figure. And this trip did not go well. (laughs) It went very, very poorly indeed. You say. (laughs) By the end of the excursion, Donna was in hysterical tears, screaming for her parents. She actually made them stop midway down the river and got out and went and got into her parents' raft and switched because her parents had been with Greg, I believe, and maybe her daughter. And Randy and her were in the other raft and she got out and she said, Greg can go with you. I'm going with my parents. I'm not going with you any longer. And later her parents were like, what is going on? And she said, he tried to kill me. I know he tried to kill me. He was deliberately steering the raft into large rocks on her side. Like he was steering her to be hit. Oh my God. Could you imagine? And she kept screaming at him. Hey, you got to stay out of the sides of the river. If you're in the middle of the river, this isn't going to happen. But he kept intentionally, she said, steering the raft to the sides of the river. They eventually got caught up in some trees And one of the branches punctured the raft and then it started deflating. And that's when she's like, get me out of here. Could you imagine? Terrifying. She's so smart. She's very, very smart and very strong. The last straw in the marriage was when she witnessed. That wasn't it. It was almost it. I think she was already planning on filing for divorce at that point, but she said that the other part of it was that she had witnessed, and this is trigger warning for child abuse, Randy abused his son by doing things like when he did something that displeased him, he would throw him in a freezing cold shower and beat him with a shower nozzle. What? Yeah. And then she came home one day and found him spanking her daughter. And Mm -hmm. a neighbor told her that they had seen Randy pinched the girl so hard by the cheek that he lifted her up, essentially. What? And she's a three or four-year-old child at this point. So she said, oh, no. No, you do not. You shall not. I'm getting myself and my daughter out of this situation. And F you. This marriage lasted barely a season. They were married in May. They were divorced in September. That's not even like a fun season either. That's like a whatever season, you know? <laughs> it was summer. Summertime. Not, yeah, whatever. It's not like, you know, <laughs> spooky season. I know. You're not even getting into the good fall season. No. September's basically part of summer. It's still hot. Today was the first day that it was cold outside this morning. Isn't that nice? Oh, I was like, oh. Ah. It's it been so like much. oven hot every day. 
everywhere though. It's been yeah. really hot everywhere. Even in Maine, it was getting into the early nineties, which is unheard of for me. It's called global warming. I'm not sure if you've <laughs> ever heard of it, but what? No, we've only been talking about it since like the 1950s. Well, I better stop using hairspray then. <laughs> A hole in the ozone layer. So she was out. Randy did not take the rejection well, and he stalked and harassed Donna for nearly a year before he met his next mark. Randy was now using eight-year-old Greg to do his dirty work. Mary Jo Phillips, yes, she was grocery shopping. She said when she saw the good-looking guy and the adorable child in a few different aisles. And then eventually Greg ran up to her and he had a note that read, will you go out with my dad? Oh my God, this isn't sleepless in fucking Seattle. Yeah. But Mary Jo was charmed. (laughs) She loved kids. She was just finalizing her divorce from her husband. She was a mother of five. And she also owned and operated a very profitable daycare center. So this was the right mark for a little kid to do that with because kids were her whole life. Just like he had with previous (laughs) girlfriends, Randy was overwhelmingly romantic at the beginning. In the book, Fatal Charm, Mary Jo said, there was a real strong attraction. He was very, very much the gentleman. He only kissed me. He wasn't at all like all hands or anything like that. It didn't matter to him that I had five children at the time. He was very respectful, utterly, completely courteous. He brought me flowers. He had always had nice things to say. He was the only person in my whole life that I really felt like I didn't have to wear makeup around because he felt like I was beautiful that way. The flowers at first came every week, she said. It was a very, very intense relationship, incredibly romantic. He had become to me the kind of man that every woman would dream about. He did everything right. He rubbed my back. He combed my hair. He dressed so that he was coordinated with what I was wearing. What? (laughs) Ew, it sounds like a nightmare. I also really don't want Nathaniel to ever comb my hair. You had me at brushing my hair. I was like, what? And then the coordinated outfits. It's like, no, thank you. I mean, Dan and I accidentally dress alike, but (laughs) I don't ever want him intentionally dressing alike. All I'm imagining is the famous Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake denim action. Forgive, but never forget. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Yeah, so those two ones lost me. She said, though, he showed me off. He made me feel really good. And he was always full of compliments, which is a lovely thing. Mm -hmm. Author Carlton Smith pointed out that Randy was incredibly good at figuring out what his target wanted and was looking for. And then he went all out to exploit those desires and make that woman feel like she had absolutely found her dream man. Yep. That's the whole thing like with Janice saying, oh, I have this great job and I own my own house because he knew she was looking for stability and security. Yeah. And now Mary Jo makes a good living. She doesn't need money. She wants romance. She wants somebody to make her feel like a woman. You have five kids and you're around kids all day. You stop feeling like a sexy woman. Really? (laughs) I only have two and I've stopped feeling like a sexy woman, so... So this was his MO, but his other MO was proposing after only a few months of dating, which he also did again with Mary Jo. Well, almost immediately after they had moved in together and they were engaged and they were talking about marriage, he, of course, starts talking about life insurance. Now, Mary Jo had a secret. 
And it was at this point that she needed to tell him because they were planning a life together. She said, well, I actually recently found out that I have cancer. Oh, plot twist. Yes. So she said, it's likely that I will survive. I'm going to need to do a lot of treatments. However, I can't get life insurance. I'm not insurable because you have to get the life insurance before you have cancer. And she said later that in the moment that day, he did seem like he took it pretty well. But then very shortly thereafter, his entire demeanor changed. He stopped being romantic with her. He stopped bringing her flowers. He stopped complimenting her. He stopped speaking to her. It's probably a blessing. Yeah, he just froze her out completely until, I mean, it was only a few weeks of this behavior where she goes, I'm not doing this. Like The whole point that we were together was because you saw me and you loved me and you made me feel good and special again. And now you're acting like I'm not even here. So she was like, if you don't change, then I'm leaving. And he's like, good, bye, see you. (sighs) She moved out. I think that she had taken... Some of her kids, I think some of the kids had stayed with the father. So she moved herself and the kids out and she said she was going to come back for some of her things. And when she came back, he had sold all of her belongings and furniture that she had brought into the marriage or into the relationship. Yeah, they hadn't ever technically gotten married. Yeah, wow. So fortunately, Mary Jo's cancer went into remission. Great. I think, I don't know if she's still doing great today, but for at least a little while, she was doing fine. And it is likely one of the rarer cases where getting cancer actually saved her life. Yes. Yeah. And she was being honest. Gosh, I mean, if you guys really want to figure out if somebody's there to kill you for life insurance money, now you know the trick. You just tell them you have cancer and you're not able to be insured and see what they say. They might have more problems with you down the road when they go, oh my gosh, of course, who cares about the life insurance? Are you okay? And you're like, ha ha. I lied. I did not have cancer. I just wanted to see if you wanted to kill me for insurance money. Maybe would be problematic in regards to establishing trust as one of the core factors of a relationship. So I'm going to need that diamond back now, please. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so don't do that tactic. Yeah, let's not. Oh, God. So I'm glad we just got a, a nice little giggle out of that because next we are moving into a section of randy's life called the neighbor from hell and i have to trigger warn you guys animal abuse sexual grooming and molestation of a minor and child abuse no yeah so it's gonna get a a little bit gnarly so remember i told you that randy had moved in next door to a nice family called the goodwins yep at first the father ben and randy were friends greg was close with the goodwins son they were relatively the same age and the goodwins would watch greg when randy worked overnight shifts but soon the family became extremely alarmed at some of randy's behaviors one night while eight-year-old ryan goodwin was at randy's house little greg forgot to flush the toilet and randy flew into a rage this is the child abuse he held Greg's head in the toilet and flushed (gasps) it again and again until the little boy almost drowned. Randy then kicked Greg in the stomach until he vomited. Okay, isn't that attempted murder? I mean, I would say so. Ryan reported the abuse to the principal of their elementary school. And Randy was reported to CPS and he was put on probation. The Goodwins feared retribution, though, because Randy had a cruel and vengeful streak. 
This was from the Anne Rule book. And I don't know if Ben Goodwin witnessed this or this came from a report from another neighbor. Okay. But in any case, Andy, you're going to really, 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 really hate this part of the story because it involves a cat. Should I just cover my ears? Well, I have to tell you, it's bad. And guys, this is really gross, but I think that it is indicative of what type of person Randy is. And so therefore germane to the story. So he really valued his cars, his material possessions, and he had some sort of hot rod car and he was waxing the hood of it when a neighbor's cat jumped on the hood and got their little footprints all over the recently waxed hood. In retribution... Randy took the cat and he ended up taping it to the drive shaft of its owner's car with duct tape. So when the car's engine started, the cat was dismembered. Are you fucking serious? That was, according to the Anne Rule book, A Rose for Her Grave. I can't imagine. Yeah. And that is not the only time that he heard an animal. A coworker also recalled a story in which she found a little frog. It had somehow found its way into this workshop or place that he was working on cars. And she pointed out to Randy. He later called her back in and pointed out to a wet spot. And he was laughing. So she said, what? What even is that? What are you talking? Why are you laughing? And he said that he had placed the frog underneath a rotating sander and that was all that was left. And when she started crying, he laughed even harder. What a psychopath. This is a very sick individual. I hope he's dead. Is he dead? I'm not going to give you a spoiler. (laughs) You have to wait till the end of the story. I feel like you should like as an apology for having to explain that cat story. I'm not telling you anything. (laughs) Okay, so the Goodwin parents were also alarmed that their teenage daughter seemed infatuated with Randy and Randy was encouraging the relationship. Yeah, I'd say that's a huge fucking red flag. Gigantic. So Ben and Marta even sat Randy down to discuss the matter. They approached it as like, look, I think it's clear that our kid has a very harmless, totally normal, childlike crush on you, but you are an adult. And it is your job to make sure that there's proper boundaries set in place. And we don't believe that maybe you're setting those boundaries and honoring them. And Randy just said, oh my gosh, you guys are crazy. Of course not. She's like an older sister to my son. She's a great babysitter. She's a kid. I would never in a million years. I think it's like sweet that she has a little crush on me, but I'm dating women my own age. This is absurd. I would never do anything like that. And it's true when Brittany, well, not that part, the truth that he wouldn't do anything ever with a child was a lie. The part about Brittany being 13 and having a very harmless crush on her handsome neighbor was true. And this is not a problem. It's not a problem for people as they grow and develop to look at adults and say, well, that person is attractive. Of course. What's not normal is the adult in these situations responding and sexually taking advantage of a child's innocent crush. Yeah. So Brittany would later say that she was only 13, I believe, when he would offer to help her in the kitchen when she was cleaning up after a family dinner that he had been invited to. And he would start rubbing up against her, caressing her butt, trying to like slyly grab a breast and pretending like it was, they were just bumping up against each other in the kitchen. 
And by the time she was 14, Randy was now fully grooming her and instructing her on how this child could lose weight by eating only one apple a day so that she could slim down and become the perfect woman for him. Uh... Yeah, there's no words. I mean, you have very little response because the horrendousness of this situation of grooming this child, both sexually and physically, but also screwing up her body image and her self-esteem and encouraging her to develop an eating disorder is just the icing on the disgusting cake. One week after Brittany turned 15 on Valentine's Day in 1987, Randy seduced and raped Brittany. And I say rape because she was a minor and he was a, I believe, 33-year-old man at this point. So there was no possibility for consent. And she'd been groomed for two years at this point to think that this was normal and romantic. So I'm calling it rape, but just so you guys can understand the scenario, there wasn't any violence or physical coercion in this. She felt... Like she was now an adult. She was 15 years old and she was making a decision to be with this person that had groomed her. So she believed she loved him. Wow. But yeah, we're going to call it rape because that's what it was. Randy promised her that they would be married when she turned 18. And yeah, there's like, I could call it statutory rape, but I feel like that takes some of the oomph away from the fact that it's rape. And it's different if he was 18 and she's 15. He's 33 years old and she is 15. That's a big, vast difference at those age brackets. He would invite Brittany over to babysit Greg and then he would drive away in front of her parents only to double back when they were not paying attention or I don't know if he like just walked back or whatever. But then he would sneak back into his own house and he would have sex with Brittany with his son in the home while they were pretending that she was babysitting for him. Oh my God. I mean, I I don't like, yeah. So Brittany said that she felt very much in love with Randy. She was completely controlled by him, which is why so many of these types of men and predators go for very, very young women because yeah. they're still developing their sense of self and their sense of what's normal in a relationship. Yes, they're very impressionable. So he was basically trying to build a perfect woman who would allow herself to be controlled. And in her account, which was in the Anne Rule book, she said that it was very bizarre because he would treat her like a woman, like he expected her to act like a 30-year-old woman on some respects. But then he would do things like punish her for forgetting to push her chair in at the end of a meal And then punish her like a child, like he would Greg, and make her do things like push-ups until she was exhausted and could no longer move. So fucking weird. This guy is so twisted. It was a very, very, very sick dynamic. She also said that she too witnessed Randy pushing Greg into freezing cold showers as punishments and beating the boy on his bare behind with a belt. Randy played games with Brittany's emotions as well. If she said or did anything that displeased him, he would give her the silent treatment. He would refuse to have sex with her or he would even bring dates and other women over to her family's home and flirt openly in front of her. She was tortured. I mean, that's just unbelievably cruel. The whole thing is what he's doing to her psychologically, sexually. I mean, it's all encompassing abuse here. 
by the time she was, I think, a junior in high school, Brittany was fed up. She was done with this relationship. Randy had dated and had even moved Mary Jo in while this was all going on, while he's still taking advantage of this teenage girl. And Brittany eventually ended things for good to date boys her own age and to come to terms with what Randy had done to her and do some healing. After Mary Jo ended up being uninsurable due to cancer and moved out, Randy needed a new scam to make some quick money, seeing as he wasn't going to be able to bump off another wife for a fat insurance check. So he just like doesn't work. He doesn't. At this point, he had been out of work for six weeks. He was on unemployment. So seeing as he couldn't kill Mary Jo, he decided to instead rob his own house and pretend it had been burglarized. And he made an insurance claim that he had lost $57,000 of stolen items. Marta Goodwin really believed him. She was terrified. So she was talking about it at her house. Well, this is really scary. It's right next door to us. We don't really have crime like that in this neighborhood. And her daughter, Brittany, goes, it didn't happen. He told me that he would do this. He told me that if he was ever down on his luck and needed cash, he would burglarize himself and get a fat insurance check. So she said, don't believe it for a second. But unfortunately, Brittany was pretty troubled at that point because of all of the fuckery that had been going on secretly in her life for a few years at this point. And her parents just thought she had a weird relationship with Randy, that she had complicated feelings about him because they didn't know that this abusive secret relationship was happening. Yeah. So they were like, well, you just have some strange thing with Randy. That can't possibly be true. He wouldn't do that. But later on, when they saw some of the things that he said were stolen, making their way back into his house and in his tool shed, because he said he had told also the the father at one point, if you're going to say anything's been stolen, definitely use tools because tools are expensive. And so they see this stuff going back in and they were like, shit, Brittany was right. Trust your kids, man. Trust them. Seriously. So also an insurance investigator came out and ended up talking to the Goodwins for a little bit. And they didn't say anything at all. They didn't even say anything about Brittany's accusation. But Randy saw the insurance investigator talking to them. And so later when he screwed up, apparently he... You have to like submit paperwork that shows how much things cost that were stolen or destroyed. Yep. So he had submitted a receipt to them and this dumbass had given the receipt of when he had sold something to a pawn shop. Oh my God. It was the receipt he got for selling it. And they were like, wait a minute. Okay, we're going to have to investigate this. So when they started really digging in deep to him, he thought it was because the Goodwins squealed on him suggesting that Brittany said something so at that point he stopped speaking with them altogether and completely froze them out which clearly was for the best yes and they were happy to be rid of him as well because now they realized that he was willing to commit insurance fraud and they had witnessed him beating his son so they said that's great because we don't want anything to do with you either It would take years and another murder for Brittany to work up the courage to tell her parents about Randy's real true sin in their family, which was grooming and preying upon their innocent child. Randy was out of work, like I said, and he was still waiting for the insurance check to hit. So he went on the prowl for an insurable wife. 
And unfortunately, he found her in a sweet, loving widow named Cindy Baumgartner in the spring of 1990. Randy was coaching their son's little league team, and pretty Cindy was working the concession stand when their eyes met and sparks flew. This would go from Hallmark to hell very quickly. So let's talk a little bit about wonderful Cindy. Cindy Ray Lukes was born a true miracle baby. Her parents had tried for a second child for 14 years after the birth of their son. What? And they had desperately wanted a little girl. So the pregnancy itself was a miracle. And then Cindy was born majorly premature. She weighed only three and a half pounds. Wow. The nurses at the hospital knew that Cindy's parents were religious. So they even asked them if they wanted to go forward and get her baptized because they were concerned she wouldn't make it. Yeah. But her father belongs to a type of religion where you have to choose the religion. So you get baptized as a teenager, essentially, when you can choose the faith. So he was like, nope, she's going to make it. I know we don't do child baptisms in our religion because the kid can't decide to choose the religion. And he's like, and I know my daughter's going to pull through. And she did. She absolutely did. She was in an incubator, I think, for the first five weeks of her life. And then she went home and she grew into a very beautiful young woman. Faith and her church were very important to Cindy and her family. And she did prioritize that value system in her life. She met a wonderful young man named Tom Baumgartner while still a teenager, and the two married in their early 20s. A strange fact about that relationship was that Tom had actually gone to high school with Randy, Mm. but they didn't hang in the same circles. And they were very, very different types of guys. In the time that Randy had married three different women, Tom had only had eyes for his beloved Cindy. The couple welcomed two sons, Tyson in 1979 and Riley in 1981. Tom was a hard worker who moved up the ranks at UPS and joined the Teamsters Union to better provide benefits for his family, which included health and life insurance and a nice pension. Sadly, the Baumgartner's marriage ended in 1985, the same year that Randy and the second Donna divorced, but of course... The circumstances of the endings of those marriages were very different. Yes. Tom was diagnosed with advanced Hodgkin's disease, the type of cancer that attacks the lymph nodes. Tom's case was very advanced and he passed away only six months after the diagnosis at 29 years old. Horrifying. They say your life can change in a flash and it absolutely can. And hopefully that's a flash for better. But these types of stories, while they're terrifying, they also make me want to appreciate what I have so much more every single day. Every totally. Yeah. Cindy was, of course, gutted. The boys were only four and six. And she'd never imagined a life without Tom. Like I said, she didn't believe in divorce. That wasn't a part of her value set, her religious upbringing. It just wasn't. So her best friend, Lori, moved in with the grieving widow. She kept the household running and became a surrogate parent to Tyson and Riley, which is awesome. I love that. I mean, obviously I would do that for you and vice versa. We just combine households. Yep. (laughs) Tom had left his family very comfortably. The house was completely paid off. Cindy received a large life insurance payment and social security checks for the boys, as well as his pension covered all of her expenses. She was able to stay home with her children and then volunteer at school functions and other community organizations as they grew. 
It was in this capacity, volunteering to run the concession stand at a Little League game, that she came across the scurrilous Randy Roth five years after Tom's tragic passing. The courtship, like all of his other courtships, was whirlwind. Randy knew exactly how to morph into what his target wanted. And for Cindy, that was a loving Christian family man. So instead of wooing her by being a passionate lover and giving her all these flowers, instead, he took all three of their collective sons on every date they went on. He talked about his interest in converting to her religion he made it sound like he was exactly that type of guy when it couldn't have been farther from the truth. I even wonder if he knew that she was going to decline the Reno offer and that he could use that as leverage to get her to marry him. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. So when that happened, the whole Reno conversation, she said, no, I can't spend the night with a man I'm not married to. They ended up eloping on August 3rd, 1990, despite the objections of Cindy's parents and her best friend, Lori, who all felt that the relationship was moving far too fast. Yeah. They both agreed to sell their respective houses and buy a new one fit for the joining of their families. Somehow, though, and I did not get any clarity. I don't think anyone got any clarity on how Randy finagled this. They bought their new house with only the profits from... Cindy's house and Randy got to keep the profits from selling his house in his own bank account that was separate from hers and then they paid the mortgage with the checks that she got from social security for her kids with free housing and a nice little bump in his savings account greedy Randy set to further get his murderous ducks in a row in early 1991, Randy and Cindy purchased a $250,000 life insurance policy on both Randy and Cindy. Cindy already had a $100,000 policy that benefited her children, but she changed the beneficiary to Randy. Ugh. Now, she did this because Randy also had his own separate policy that benefited Greg. And he said, well, no. We need it for both kids. So if you go, I'm going to need it for all of our collective children. If I go, you're going to need it for all of our collective children. I don't want Greg cut out of that. And I don't want your sons cut out of mine or et cetera, or vice versa, yeah. or whatever. And she agreed. And he said, well, I'm also changing my policy to benefit you. But he didn't. It was a lie. He never did. Oh, my God. Within only months of the wedding, Cindy realized she had been impetuous and feared that the marriage had been a mistake. Randy never attended church like he had prior to their wedding, and he had promised he was going to continue to do. He became cold, jealous, and controlling. He became belittling, and he enacted cruel punishments for her boys and Greg alike, Doing things like waking them up in the middle of the night and go out in the freezing cold and do, they call them like squat jumps, but I think they're essentially burpees. Yeah. And do the squat thrusts is what he was calling them. Squat thrusts are burpees until they would collapse. And if they slowed down, he would hose them. Wow. In the middle of the night in January. So obviously that's not a nice Christian man of her dreams who would do that sort of thing to her children. The romantic gestures had stopped and the sex was non-existent. She had expected after a passionate courtship where they had been holding back from their desires that when they finally got married, it would be steamy, steamy, steamy all yep. the time. 
especially after she had been celibate for five years after the passing of her husband. Yeah. So all of her hopes for a fulfilling and sexual marriage were out the window at this yeah. point. Lori said later that her friend was depressed, but trying to figure out how to improve the marriage because she did not believe in divorce. She told Lori that Randy was overly critical and demeaned her looks, her personality, her cooking, the house that they had bought, everything. He had taken control over the finances, even though she was the one primarily paying the bills. Later, police would discover a poem that Cindy wrote during this time that is a real heartbreaker. And this was in both Fatal Charm and A Rose for Her Grave. She wrote, Randy does not love Cindy. Randy hates Cindy. Randy hates Cindy's face makeup. Randy hates Cindy's blush. Randy hates Cindy's blonde hair. Randy hates Cindy's ugly toes. They're the ugliest toes he's ever seen. Randy hates Cindy's cold feet. Randy hates Cindy's cold hands. Randy hates Cindy's fingernails. It goes on and on. I'm even picking and choosing which ones I'm going to say, but it's suffice to say, guys, it's everything. It's Cindy's pictures, Cindy's furniture. Hates the way Cindy drives. Hates the way Cindy cooks. Hates the way Cindy buys groceries too many every week and spends too much money. Hates the house. Hates her things. Hates her money. Hates her independent nature. He hates the way she grinds her teeth. Hates the way Cindy picks up his papers all the time. Hates that she drinks coffee. Hates that Cindy eats more than all of the boys, she wrote. Hates how Cindy decorates a house. Hates Cindy shopping. Hates Cindy leaving the house at all. Hates Cindy's pants. Hates the fact that Cindy likes to eat because she'll get fat. Unreal. It's just terrible. I probably am not going to continue. You guys could even Google this if you're interested. It goes on and on. He hates Cindy having Lori over to our house. He hates coming home after work instead of doing other things. Hates not being able to leave. Hates telling Cindy where he goes. Hates Cindy's monthly thing and putting up with her each month. Ugh, this poor woman. Devastating. No person should feel like that in a relationship. No. Meanwhile, while Cindy is going through emotional hell, trying to balance her value system and staying in this marriage that's minimizing her and deteriorating her soul as a human being. Yeah. Randy was already on the prowl for wife number five, a coworker at the car dealership that he worked at at this point named Stacy came forward later. Oh, guys, also, so I read those two books, but I also watched an ID show called Diabolical, season two, episode nine on this case. And Stacy is one of the people, so is Terry, who speaks on the show. And Stacy said that Randy had always been asking her out. He'd been trying to get her to go on a date with him. She had had a friendly, what she thought was more of a coworker type lunch with him. Yeah. At some point. And when he had taken her on this lunch, he was just complaining bitterly about Cindy and talking so much smack. He said that Cindy was obsessive and nasty and a real bitch. Wow. And she was like, oof, that's not how somebody should talk about their wife. Why are you even still married? And he told her that he wasn't going to be much longer because actually Cindy and himself had a marriage contract where they agreed to be married for only one year. <laughs> He's like, are you kidding me? Apparently he also told another coworker at this place the same thing 
And that coworker recalled that because it was so bizarre and no one had ever heard of such an arrangement. No. Unless we're talking about the Netflix mega hit movie, Purple <laughs> Hearts, featuring original songs by Daniel Crean. And where there- you have to list everyone if you're going to list Dan. <laughs> okay. Who are the other people? It's way too long. There's like five of them. <laughs> okay, fine. Daniel Crean and other talented musicians and songwriters then yeah, people don't have a contract about no. how long they're going to decide to be married. No. So Cindy knew none of this. Clearly she didn't know that he was taking out coworkers and saying that they had a marriage contract. No. In an effort to save the marriage, Cindy agreed to a lake trip together on July 23rd, 1991, roughly 10 days shy of their one year anniversary. It was the hottest day of the year and nearly 100 degrees in Washington state, which is not usual as well. No. So the couple brought nine-year-old Riley and 11-year-old Tyson with them to cool off in Lake Sammamish. After arriving at the lake, Randy somehow convinced Cindy to take a raft ride alone with him, leaving Riley and Tyson on the beach by themselves. Uh... This is of itself a big question mark on how he did this because all of Cindy's friends said there's no way she would leave her sons alone. Yeah. So we don't even know how he got her to go on this raft ride. So according to Randy, what happened was that they decided to take this raft ride. They let the boys play on the beach and that they had been paddling around for a while but it was so hot that Cindy decided to get in the water to go for a swim. After a little bit of swimming, her leg had cramped up. So she swam back over to the raft where she was holding on to the side. Randy said then that a motorboat went by, creating a huge wave that swamped the raft and caused it to overturn. He said that he heard some sort of choking noise like she had swallowed water. By the time he was able to right the raft and get a sense of his own bearings, he said that he discovered Cindy floating face down underneath the raft. At that point, he managed to pull her up into the raft and paddle back to the shore to get help. That's Randy's story of what happened. Okay. Now, Riley and Tyson were on the shore looking for their mother when they saw Randy leisurely rowing the raft back to the beach. No hustle in this guy's step at all. There were also hundreds of people at the beach because it was so bizarre that it was so hot. So everyone had gone to the lake to cool off. So there's hundreds of people on the shore. There's also hundreds of people on kayaks and boats yeah. Yeah. all around. At any point, he could have screamed to any of these people, help, help my wife is drowning or please help me. But he didn't. <clears throat> they watched him just slowly paddle back up to the shore. And they thought that their mother must've been lying down and sunbathing because they could see that she wasn't there. It looked like she was in the bottom of the raft. So he tried to cross through this swimming area, this designated swimmers area. And yeah. the lifeguard said, sir, you know, you have to get your raft 25 yards away from the swim area. And he didn't listen to the lifeguard. He just kept going straight through. But he also still did not <clears throat> yell to the man, please come down here. I need help. Which is he what said, you would say to a lifeguard. You'd say the person's yelling at you and you'd say, please come help me. I'm coming through because I need help. 
And he just very casually got on the shore, pulled the raft up, and with no warning, the two boys, Tyson and Riley, had come down to greet their mother. He didn't say, guys, step back, or boys, go get help. They just are looking at their mother, who they said was lying in four inches of water. Her eyes were vacant and staring straight ahead. She was soaking wet, and her face and upper torso were already blue. And he says to them, quietly, go get the lifeguard, ask him for help, but don't make a commotion. Which is clear he's trying not to draw attention to the fact that he just murdered somebody. Yes. The terrified little boys went to a 19-year-old lifeguard who was on a tower, but he didn't immediately understand what they were talking about. And he was high up and he almost instructed them to go to a different, more of like a booth or stand area because he had to stay at the tower to watch everyone. When he looked over and he saw where they were pointing to the raft and he saw the woman in the raft who was in very bad shape. This kid's 19 years old. It's his summer job. And he is like, holy shit, I have to save a life now. So he hustles down and he gets to Randy and the raft and Cindy and he starts performing CPR. And in between breaths, he asks Randy, what is going on? How long was she under? And Randy was cool as a cucumber, still wearing his sunglasses and says, I think it was 10 minutes. Maybe it was a little less. 10 minutes? It doesn't take you 10 minutes to figure out where your wife is in the water or turn a raft over. No. So the guy is working on Cindy. After a couple minutes of CPR, Cindy vomited some sticky red liquid up. And the teenage lifeguard realized he was in a little bit over his head. He didn't know what was the next step to do. Luckily, there was a paramedic on the beach named Patty Schultz. And Patty took over there. And she also started asking Randy questions. And now he's saying, oh, she was under for five minutes. So he's changing his story again, within minutes, the ambulance arrived and Cindy was rushed to the hospital with EMTs administering what they had hoped was life-saving care, but it was unfortunately too late. Cindy Ray Luke's Baumgartner was dead on arrival. When the police arrived, they were shocked that Randy introduced himself as the drowned woman's husband because everyone up until that point thought he was just a random bystander who happened to be the closest to the drowning yeah. woman. Yeah. Because his effect was so emotionless and standoffish. It was like he was looking at a stranger. Yeah. So they were like, you're the husband? And the paramedic, yeah. Patty, could not believe it because he was standing right next to the boys and he wasn't hugging them. He was not putting a hand on their shoulder. He wasn't speaking to them. They were now crying, of course, and he didn't say one word. And he looked, in fact, like he wanted to yell at them for crying, but he knew that it was not going to look good. Yeah. He looked irritated and annoyed with them. So Patty was the one who took the boys and hugged them and held them while they cried. And Randy insisted on driving himself and the boys to the hospital to follow the ambulance And she's a paramedic and she, the only way she can understand this behavior is that he's in shock. So she's like, I'm sorry, I'm a medical professional. I cannot let you drive right now because you're clearly in shock. And he was like, I want my truck there though. Like my truck needs to be at the hospital. I'm not gonna be inconvenienced. Whoa. 
So she was like, I'm very happy to drive it for you. I will drive you to the hospital and I'll have my husband follow me in our car, but you're not driving anywhere because I'm concerned about you. And the police also were very surprised about his behavior because he was casually deflating the raft, not a tear in sight. Well, the boys were hysterical and they're just watching him methodically close this raft up. And they're like, hey, you know, we're going to need that for evidence. So you might want to just hand it over to us. And he's like, what? No, I can't give you my raft. I need this. He was packing up the boys and deflating the raft like this was just any other beach day that they were just going home from after a long day at the lake. So crazy. It's crazy. So on the way to the hospital, Patty was asking him for more information about what happened. And then he asked her, how long does a person have to go without oxygen before they have irreversible brain damage and death? And she said, well, with CPR, maybe 30 minutes. And he said, well, what about without it? And she admitted that it probably wouldn't take that long. Randy still not emoting anything said, "Mm, you know, I think it's four minutes now that I'm remembering it from a CPR class that I took. I think that it's four minutes. And she thought, if you knew CPR, then why the fuck didn't you try to save your wife's life? Yep. What were you doing? At the hospital, the doctors determined that Cindy was indeed deceased and had been without oxygen for at least a minimum of 10 minutes before CPR was administered. Randy was again emotionless when the terrible news was delivered. The boys were beside themselves. They would later say that Randy yelled at them for crying in the car saying, I don't know why you're crying. Death happens. You can't do anything about it. So you just got to get over it. Wow. He bought them pizza. And the other sick thing is that he rented them a video He said he was going to get them a comedy to cheer them up. The one he rented was Weekend at Bernie's. Oh my God. Their mother died that day. And isn't that movie all about a lake vacation with a dead person? Yeah. So the paramedics and witnesses all told the police that Randy's behavior was super suspicious. Randy had acted oddly, but he had also given those contradictory reports to several people and the police about what exactly had happened. Unfortunately, the autopsy didn't necessarily point to homicide. It was clear that Cindy had died of freshwater drowning, and she did have two small scratches on her neck, but there wasn't any clear indication that there had been a struggle. She didn't have any DNA underneath her fingernails that would have suggested she was fighting the person drowning her. So without any evidence to suggest it was anything but a drowning, the medical examiner ruled it an accidental death. Once the drowning made the papers, several people came forward to speak to the police, including Mary Jo, the former fiance, who detailed Randy's romantic history and encouraged them to look into Janice's death. They also heard from Donna number two about how Randy had tried to kill her. They heard from Brittany Goodwin about the perverse grooming and sexual abuse he had put her through. And they also spoke to Stacy, the coworker who Randy had been hitting on. And she was the one who told them what Randy had said about the one-year contract. Yep. When Lori, Cindy's best friend, was interviewed by the police, they asked her specifically about this contract. Did they have that sort of relationship? And she was like, that's total BS. This is a woman who won't even spend the night with a man before they're married. Do you think she would cheapen marriage by saying this is our our one-year out? 
She was the one who also told them about the life insurance policy and that Randy had pressured Cindy into making himself the beneficiary of her solo policy and also beefing up another policy for both of them. The police decided that the whole thing stunk to high heaven and they decided to really dig into Randy. They went through his bank records, his insurance records. They interviewed friends, coworkers, ex-wives. They took a fine tooth comb through his criminal and military records as well. The life insurance agent told the police that Randy stood to cash in on a whopping $365,000 policy, which is more like $820,000 in today's money. This also showed that Randy had lied to the police. When they interviewed him, he said that the policy was more like $200,000, maybe. And he said that it was to cover the mortgage. $365,000 was more than three times what was needed to cover the mortgage. Wow. Randy wasn't just busy trying to get his hands on the life insurance money. He also tried to get Stacy to go to Reno with him one week after Cindy's death, saying that they had bought tickets, I believe, to some show for their anniversary, and he did not want them to go to waste. Wow. Stacy declined, and she called the police immediately. Good for her. He also cleaned out Cindy's safety deposit box at the bank, stealing her possessions and also destroying a copy of her will that said that she still left everything to Lori, her best friend, including custody of the boys. Good. So luckily this will was still filed with her estate attorney and the boys were unbelievably grateful that they got to go with Lori, who had been a surrogate parent to them in the wake of their father's death and not cruel, abusive Randy Roth, who was trying to get custody of the boys. Psycho. And his motivations, of course, were entirely based on money. Yeah. He wanted Tom's pension and social security from both parents dying that the children receive up until they're 18, I believe. Guys, don't at me about social security benefits. <laughs> but he was looking to get their hands on their money. And when it was revealed that Lori was still the guardian, she very much ripped those kids out of there and went back another time to go get their belongings, which she found out he was selling. He was selling their stuff just like he had done to Mary Jo. Yeah. And when she tried to say, you can't do that, the, this was community property and these children are now in my custody. He said, you ruined everything. You ruined my whole scenario. I was going to quit my job and take care of these boys using the security check money, but now you get it. I know that you just want the money. You're just a greedy bitch. Wow. She was like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to just not respond and get out of here as fast as possible. So this was a really tough case because all of the evidence was almost entirely circumstantial. But luckily, the state did decide to go forward with it, and Randy was arrested on October 9th, 1991. After he was arrested, the police obtained a search warrant for his house and found evidence of his previous insurance fraud, auto parts, and (gasps) tools stolen from his current job, and, of course, the super sad note-slash-poem that Cindy had written. Randy's trial began on March 10th, 1992. He had lost lots of weight in jail, and it seemed like it was done purposely to manipulate his appearance. He was pretty thin at this point and wearing these Coke bottle thick glasses, and it seemed like it was in 
intentional to make him appear as some sort of little weakling who wouldn't have the body strength to drown his wife. Yeah. The defense argued valiantly to keep Randy's history of insurance fraud and Janice's suspicious death out of the trial, but they failed. It was all fair game. The judge ruled that Randy had tried to cash in another life insurance policy and that the other insurance fraud had been discovered during the same search of his house. Yep. So that it was all relevant to the case that was at hand. It was all tied in together. And it was a history of insurance fraud. So it was relevant. The prosecution argued that Randy Roth was a cold-blooded murderer who married and killed for profit. They presented evidence that showed that Randy had a long history of insurance fraud going back as far as convincing Janice to torch her car for money. The so-called robbery of his home, the gigantic policies that he took out on his wives, whose deaths he architected, which, by the way, is also insurance fraud. When yep. you take out a life insurance policy and then you kill somebody, that's murder. And we always call it murder, but it's also insurance fraud. Yes. The way he had tried to collect Social Security benefits on the boys, but also Jelena fraudulently, because he did that the same thing to the boys. Even after Lori took possession of the children, he tried to collect their Social Security benefits. Psycho. Also, Mary Jo testified that when Randy discovered that he could not take out a life insurance policy on her, he dropped her like a rock. And Donna, number two, testified that Randy had tried to murder her as well. The prosecutor, a real firebrand named Marilyn Brenneman, who is on the episode of Diabolical that I watched, presented what she believed happened to Cindy. She believed that Cindy did swim around for a little while, but Randy had paddled the raft further and further away from her. So every time she tried to come in to get on the raft and relax, he would just scoot it away so that he eventually exhausted her. Terrifying. While she was just treading water and trying to swim to him. And then it made it very easy for him to just reach down and hold her underneath water. Yep. And they did a bunch of tests on this. First of all, they found out that the raft could not be flipped the way he said it was going to be flipped. They did all these tests with the police boats and motorboats going directly next to the raft. And there was no way that it could be flipped the way he described. They also had a woman who was the captain of a swim team at a college level swim and act out different scenarios of drowning. And she said she was genuinely frightened at some of the scenarios, even being insanely in shape, brilliant swimmer. She felt like the person who was holding her down was absolutely capable of drowning her. And they were doing it as a test. So they weren't even really giving her the full weight. Yeah. Randy's defense attorneys attempted to portray him as a poor, unfortunate single father who had the terrible luck to be widowered twice in freak accidents. Oh, my God. They pointed to the facts that Randy had never been charged with Janice's murder and that the medical examiner had initially ruled Cindy's death as an accident. They stated that everything that seemingly pointed to Randy's guilt was purely circumstantial and that was not enough to convict on. His attorney told a parable about a dog and pie in his closing arguments, which I just have to share with you guys. Carlton Smith wrote in his book, Fatal Charm, defense attorney Cody gave a homily about the pitfalls of circumstantial evidence, telling the jury about a blueberry pie that a farmer had presumed a puppy had eaten based on the circumstance of finding the puppy next to an overturned empty plate when in fact a child had eaten the pie. 
the very next day, Cody said the puppy went back to the pound because that folks is what it's like to be convicted on nothing but circumstantial evidence. Oh my God. The prosecutor, Marilyn Brenneman got up and she was like, this case doesn't involve a blueberry pie and it doesn't involve a neighborhood boy who frames a small spaniel. Nobody framed Randy Roth. No witness came in here and deliberately lied to you about Randy Roth. He is not an innocent puppy that was taken back to the pound for eating a blueberry pie. That's just grasping at straws. (laughs) It was so, I don't even know who he thought that was speaking to. I guess dog lovers. (laughs) He's like, dog lovers are all I got because somebody got on the stand and told the cat story. So I got to really hope there's some dog lovers in this (laughs) this jury. (laughs) On April 23rd, 1992, after eight weeks of trial and over 100 testifying witnesses, the jury was let out to deliberate. They deliberated for eight and a half hours before delivering the following verdict. Guilty of the first-degree murder of Cynthia Baumgartner, guilty of first-degree theft, and guilty of second-degree theft relating to the insurance fraud and the stolen tools and auto parts. Randy was sentenced to 55 years in prison, where he remains to this day. His earliest possible parole date is in 2029, when he will be 74 years old, I think. I think that's roughly how old he will be, somewhere between 72 and 75 years old. According to Diabolical, Randy married his fifth wife in prison in 1999, but I couldn't really find out much more about that marriage. If you guys find an article about it or give me any information, I would be very wildly curious at what type of human being reads all of this about this man and decides he's the one. It's that one, the one that killed two of his wives. I want that And a cat. And a cat and a frog and sexually abused his teenage neighbor. Riley and Tyson were raised in a loving environment with Lori. And Greg ended up with his paternal grandfather. I was going to say, please tell me what happened to Greg. Yeah, I don't really know what happened to Greg when he grew up. I'm hoping that he was fine. There are circumstances in which people are shitty parents, but then good grandparents. So we can only hope that was the case. Yeah. And Rule compared Randy to a modern-day bluebeard from the legend, a man of charm who seduces and weds only to kill repeatedly. By the way, I totally have to do a Patreon episode about the folktale of Bluebeard because when I was, I think, about 10 years old, my aunt gave me an anthology of Southern folktales, and there was some variation of the Bluebeard legend but it was called something like the Mr. Fox or the marrying Mr. Fox. It was so scary, Andy, that I had to sleep with the light on for weeks. And when my parents were upset with me about it, I would then sleep under the covers, under several covers in the middle of the summer, sweating because I was so scared. I didn't want to peek out of the covers. So I think that would be a good one to do for the Patreon to discuss the legend and the folktales and all folktales usually have some basis in some little sneaky, true, true crime story. So I want to look into that one. Okay. In conclusion, I think we should all be skeptical of when we're kind of on the outs with our spouse and then they suggest an isolated romantic outdoor activity. I don't know if I trust them. Honestly, this is is why I hike alone. People are like all the time. (laughs) 
how can you hike alone? Aren't you scared up in the wilderness all by yourself? And I'm like, well, statistically, I'm not with the person that is most likely to kill me. So I'm actually much safer. Okay. Than you, okay. Than you, okay. you people hiking with your partners. <laughs> I also think it would probably be in everyone's best interest to not use a homily <laughs> as a closing argument or statement in a murder trial. Just keep the puppies and the kids and the blueberry pies out of your closing statement. Especially when your client murdered animals. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Thank you guys for listening. We love you. 